Live from Beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of room and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by college progressive Philip Beverly, conservative commentator Chris Roebling, progressive writer David Masiotro, Mark Levin from Right on Crime, and conservative Nick Calm. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base in Evanston, Illinois, WCGO Radio. Nice to have you with us this evening. Got a full two hours of discussion for you. And again, as I said to our guests before we went on the air, I think tonight is a significant point in the show in that over the last 40 years, and we will celebrate our anniversary in a couple of weeks, uh, we have uh, gathered together once a week to have uh, discussions of very important issues uh, uh, as it relates to uh, a culture and national security. And I think we're at a point in this country right now, uh, given the the, the race uh, relations that we are dealing with uh, and the discussion of race and police brutality. Uh, this is going to be an important program this evening. And again, I think for the next several months, because it is a very important issue. We have two great longtime guests on this program, Phil Beverly. Uh, he is our progressive. Our conservative is Chris Roebling. And I want to begin uh, with you. I'm going to start with you, uh, uh, Chris Roebling, because I'd like to find out if we're going to have a meaningful conversation. We need each side in, in America to listen to the other side. And whether you want to say that's between liberals and conservatives or blacks and whites, uh, let, let me ask you to answer for uh, conservatives and, and Caucasians. What is it that uh, Caucasians must acknowledge or stipulate if they are going to have a meaningful conversation with African-Americans. Bruce, I think I heard you say, what is it that Caucasians need to acknowledge? Is that right? Acknowledge, right. What, I mean, if, if, if in a good discussion, you're going to make a list of the positive and negative things that each side has about the other, are there certain things, if we're moving forward and trying to resolve the matter, are there some things that whites in America should acknowledge about their past dealings that, uh, and we'll ask the same question to Phil Beverly, but I'll start with you. Well, I, I, honestly, I, I don't take that approach and I'll tell you why. Okay. I think that you know, folks alive today in the United States, uh, take myself as an example. The night before I was born, the very night before I was born was the night that Rosa Parks refused to change her seat on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I, my life is more or less coterminous with that understanding of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Other people extend it back to say, uh, president Eisenhower sending in the 101st airborne to integrate the little rock schools. But regardless, we've got a lot of people today who have witnessed over the course of their lives an awakening on the part of, the, um, the majority in America, thanks to the leadership of people like Reverend Martin Luther King, that we had allowed Jim Crow down through the ages since the dissipation of the, of the, um, the restoration after, world, after the Civil War mm -hmm. and, and the reconstruction after the Civil War to prolong 
the kind of systemic racism that all of us found abhorrent. Chris, if I can put a fine point on your answer, and then I do want to hear from Phil, is is part of that answer that a lot of white people in America don't know much, if at all, about African-American history in the last 100 years. Would you could you give me a yes or no to that question? I, 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 what what I think distinguishes the last hundred years is the effort on both sides to portray concerns and possible solutions, and we have put a lot of attempts at solutions onto the books. And what we're learning, in part from the demonstrations, not from the rioting, not from the looting, but from the demonstrations, we learn that you know that. That it, it that aspects of what we have done have not been enough. Okay, I'm going to go to Phil Beverly. Phil, let me ask you the same question: what What is it that um, you would want white people to know about the black experience that you don't think they know right now? Hmm. I, I think the the biggest thing that they they don't know is how fatiguing it is to be black in America. The most of the people that I talk to in my community, we ask them sort of their predominant um, emotional condition. It's just, we're tired. We're tired of turning on the news and seeing somebody else choked, killed, hung by the police. And there'd be no consequence for that. There's, there's no accountability for that. And it's just, it's just exhausting. And then if you look in other, other places and spaces in the, in the society and you don't see representation and you see the same sort of um, more sophisticated exclusion. And I'll just say the name that, that Roger Goodell wouldn't say in his statement, and that's Colin Kaepernick, mm-hmm. the, the, the guy who took a knee and ended up having the president of the United States call NFL players SOBs for it. I mean, it's fatiguing. And I'm just, I'm tired. I know a bunch of folks are tired and I I don't know how much longer you you function with the fatigue. Okay. If, if African-Americans feel the way, as you've just stated, um, would you acknowledge trying to acknowledge what, what each side would acknowledge would you acknowledge that there are many whites in America who may be fatigued about having the issue of race thrust on them and they are left to try to defend things that were done 75, 100 years ago by their relatives that they personally had nothing to do with? Bruce, I, I would agree. They had nothing to do with, and yet today they still benefit from the result of. Because you didn't own slaves is not an excuse for the, the same sort of white privilege, the knapsack of benefit that is that is unseen that that whites operate in the society with. Now, I, I, that's a that's a nice sort of oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Come on now, you, you still benefit from it. There is still such a thing called white privilege. Do you agree with that, uh, Chris? I mean, that, that woman in Central Park <clears throat> who on camera says mm-hmm. that she's going to lie to the police. That's about privilege. Right. That just happened within the last 30 days. Chris Roebling, I want you to. Slaves, and her family may okay. not have owned slaves, and she still benefited from the ability to put a black man's life at risk. 
because let's face it, the NYPD has choked black men to death before. That's not like, uh, uh, oh, that could never happen here. That's happened. Uh, Chris Roebling, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that, but we're heading into a commercial break right now. But think of that answer. And also, I do want to stress uh, that our phone number is 1-800-723-8289. Obviously, we're taking a, a Facebook comments as well. We are live on Facebook. We're live on YouTube. We're live on a, many of America's great radio stations, including Sirius and XM Satellite Radio. So we've got lots of opportunities to reach us tonight. We'd like to good, solid uh Uh, light-inspiring discussion of race and the situation we find ourselves in America at this moment in our history. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly on Beyond the Beltway. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Chris Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway, and before the break, Chris Roebling, you were about to make a point, so we send it back to you for that point. We're in this together. We have to work together. Mm -hmm. We started working together in the 1950s, and that exploded in the 1960s, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. We adopted affirmative action. Today, people with that have enjoyed enormous benefits. And, you know, I remember when every major city police commissioner or chief of police was basically an Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And now we've got diversity. We've got men. We've got women. We have uh, Latinos. We've got blacks. We've got whites. We've got Asians in some areas. It's a big country with a lot of people from different backgrounds, and we're all in this together. And the oh, fact you know, that can, can I just can I can I just interrupt you? But I mean, we're all in this together. It's like Boston strong, Chicago strong. It it's it's a slogan, but I don't know, think it means anything. I I, I want to try to see if we can get beyond sort of just the uh, uh, the, the usual uh, you know lines or bumper stickers that we see on this stuff and talk about real things. I want I want to talk about and let let's do this right now. Let's spend some time talking about the House Senate Democratic bill. They they have uh, basically four uh, major points. And I want to get your reaction. I'll, I'll start with you, Phil Beverly. I would assume you support all elements of it, but maybe uh, you think there's elements in there that could be uh, have a finer point. Do you agree? In fact, let's just do a yes or no. If we can really, Chris, try to give me a yes or no on this. Do you support a national database that would identify and keep track of bad cops? Phil Beverly, yes or no? Phil Beverly, are you there? 
Bill Sorry Beverly, if you're there, yes, you I turned support, your I microphone support a national database. Yes. Okay. Chris Roebling, yes or no? Sure. Okay. Point number two, ban chokeholds. Philip Beverly. Yes. Chris Roebling. They're already banned all over the country. The federal legislation is surplusage. It's not necessary, but fine. Okay. Uh, racial bias training at all levels. Phil Beverly. Sure. Chris Roebling. There is not a major police department. You see, this is where the Democrats go wrong. They're attempting to say that these issues have not been treated. The fact is, you cannot become a cop in L.A. or Seattle, Atlanta or Chicago, New York or Boston without going through sensitivity training. So th- this is this is the you could in Minneapolis. You could in Minneapolis. There's many police departments in the United States, and the six that you mentioned are large departments. And how do we know about the training at the at much smaller departments that make up the majority of that eighteen thousand law enforcement agencies in the United you know, States? I mean, this see we're down we're down this road right now because we're talking about police and African Americans. And we, and that's important, and it's vitally significant that police treat everyone the same. But they but, don't. Know, if Chris, we're going to have Chris, local police, Chris, Chris, the reality is they don't. They didn't in Minneapolis. No, I mean uh, exactly, you know, exactly. My so question is: do you so a simple question? I, mean, do you, I, mean, I thought there would be a simple. That, that frankly, I thought that would be a simple yes. That that racial sensitivity training is something that every police department should have if they don't have it. And if they do have it, they perhaps should review it no, to make sure it's working better. Bruce, Bruce, this is, no, this is, this is question begging and it's the wrong direction because what you end up doing is saying the people of Minneapolis cannot take care of their own police department. We have to go to Washington. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that the people I do. in Minneapolis can't do it. I do. I, 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 do. I, 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 I certainly, I, I, I certainly, I certainly believe that the Minnesota department can't handle it. Do you believe that the Seattle police department can handle it? I mean, they've got well, a portion the of their point, city I'm surrounded sorry. right now. I, I do believe in, you know, the people of Phoenix or, or Seattle or Salt Lake City. I mean, I don't believe that those folks, when they're voting for senators and congressmen, are illuminated. And then the moment you get them back into their local community at a camps meeting, they're all a bunch of dullards. That doesn't make any sense. So the Democrats are trying to use this issue, I believe, for political purposes. Well, of course they are. The rest of us are trying to use this issue to improve race relations. No, but I'm saying this, you know, Chris, both sides, both sides use things for both sides. Bill Beverly. Everybody does that. Politics is practiced by politicians and they do things that are political. Of course they do. And so let's not disparage them for it because, you know, your side does exactly the same thing. How, how else could we have had such a flawed response with COVID-19 if it wasn't politicized? It should have been it should have been a no brainer how that was managed at the federal level. And yet it wasn't. So let's let's not attack the, the Democrats for being political because both po- parties and sides are political. They're doing political well, things. Look, I, look, I'm going to attack the Democrats. Honestly, Phil, I would attack the Democrats for failing. I mean, it, you know, I'm sorry, if you, say that again. I didn't get the attack. I'm going to attack the Democrats for failing on this issue. And here's why. 
You go to Seattle, find out how many Republican city council mem- members there are. Zero. You go to Seattle, how many fu- how many mayors of Seattle have been Republicans in the last 50 years? About zero, maybe one or two. You go to Chicago, go to Dallas, go to any of these places. You're not talking about hotbeds of reactionary Republicanism. You're talking about strongholds of liberal Democrats. And these folks have failed. And the point that the reason that they have failed is the, the whole point of this conversation. The fact that you say what you say, which is heartfelt and true, and I hear you and, I, and my heart breaks for you as a friend and for your entire community. But the idea that the liberal Democrats in charge of Milwaukee police or Chicago police have not been able to answer this question appropriately in the practices of their cops shows you that going to the liberal Democrats in Washington is a fool's errand. Phil, your response. I don't know how how you you sort of make the two. It seems that in our in our system, some things have to be changed at the state level. And in some of those states that are controlled by Republican majorities, the state has been sort of reluctant to change state law, which is a bit disturbing, right? If if police officers who engage in misconduct are protected by state law, for example, Amadou Diallo's um, killers, four police officers who shot at this unarmed man 44 times, had the audacity to say, oh, we were in fear of our lives. Four armed police officers and one unarmed black man, oh, we were in fear of our lives. And of course, the law passed by a Republican legislature in New York backed them up. And of course, they walked out of, out of that courtroom free because the law was on their side. There's no justice there. That didn't have anything to do with, with Democrats in the city of New York. That had right. to do with Republicans in the state How of do we, right. gentlemen, 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 let me ask, how do we get beyond uh, what the Republicans are saying and what the Democrats are saying? How do we get beyond talking about solving this issue uh, just by bringing up the subject of political labels. I agree with you historically, Chris. You are absolutely right. Most of the most of the major cities, virtually all the major cities in the United States for the last 50 years have been run by Democrats, okay? And they make the rules for that city, and, and many of those cities are out of control or certainly have been out of control, including what we have in Seattle, Washington, as we speak this evening. So they're out of control. So they're not good doing the job. But that doesn't necessarily address the bigger, broader issue I'm trying to get to this evening. And that is, if you are a black person in America, why is it that we keep hearing over and over again that a black person is shot, resisting arrest, frequently with, with video shown? And I want to ask you that question, Phil, because one of the things I had hoped you had said in response to my question about acknowledgments and stipulations of things, why is it that so many black men in America don't understand that if a police officer tells you to stop, you better stop or you will increase the likelihood that you're going to be shot? I think it's the it's the paradox of of being part of and not part of this culture. Simply put, if I believe that I haven't done anything wrong and I'm being harassed, then I'm, I may behave in a way that is idealistic and naive that could eventually cost me my life. Do you wonder? But let me ask the question that I would ask everyone. I mean, 
isn't there a, or should there be a general understanding when they have the parent-child talk, and I don't care regardless of the race involved, isn't one of the things is if you do something that some people think is wrong and a police officer shows up, society has given them the power to carry a gun and use it. So if they tell you to stop and show your ID, damn it, do it. It isn't about what happened, you know, six months ago or a hundred years ago. It's that particular moment. And I'm just saying is that if you if you are white, this and I I would agree with you that may, that, that 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 police officers probably do react differently if they stop a black car than if they stop a white car or a car with 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 whites or blacks Absolutely. in it. I agree with that. But however, I mean, since since we're dealing with this, what you have described as a systemic racist system, or at least Democrats have, why don't you learn from that? I mean, the, the, the guy in Atlanta, uh, you know, last night, he didn't learn from what happened to George Floyd. He resisted arrest. And then he stole the taser gun, and then he Bruce, used it on a police officer. Bruce, psychologically, I think there's there's something present that we may not want to acknowledge here. I want to hear it, but I, I want to give you time to do it. But we're going to a commercial break now, and I want to give you the full opportunity when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Tonight, we're talking with Chris Roebling and Philip Beverly. We thank you very much for joining us. 1-800-723-8289. We also have, also have callers, and we will go to them in our next segment. Back shortly. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway, and now let's let our guests introduce themselves, and we start with Phil Beverly. Phil? Hello, Bruce. I'm an assistant vice provost at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and um, I also teach on the side at UIC in the Honors College, so I'm a full-time administrator and part-time teacher, which has been a shift for me in the last uh, year or so from being full-time teacher to part-time administrator. So. Chris Roebling, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing. Well, I'm very proud to have been on this program off and on for 35 years. Yep. And uh, I uh, used to do a lot of political campaigning around, and now I'm more into business and business consulting. Thank you. I want to go to calls. Let's go to David listening to us in Spokane, Washington on KXLY. Go ahead, David. David, are you there? David, are you there? How about Mario in El Paso, Texas? Are you there, Mario? Hey. 
Go yes, ahead. I am. How you doing, Bruce? Great. Nice to hear from you, El Paso uh, tonight. Yeah, I just wanted uh, to reiterate uh, what you said. You hit the nail on the head. Thank you. Uh, by the way, I grew was born and grew up in Chicago. I was born at Oak Park Hospital 70 oh. years ago. Okay. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, you know, they keep talking about reparations. Well, in 1972, I took an application and a test for the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad. Mm-hmm. I did the test. I got 94 out of 100, and I was told because of affirmative action, as long as a minority got a 70, they got the job. This doesn't make sense to me, but that's how it was. Bill Beverly, uh, this is an anecdotal comment, but again, I'm sure you've heard similar comments uh, from those who uh, maybe along life's way feel that they have been uh, victimized uh, by some of these uh, federal programs. Your response? Um, I, I had three life rules instilled in me from my senior ROTC instructor when I was at Arizona State. Plan ahead, be flexible, and nobody said it was going to be fair. And I, I hate to say that I see the unfairness in a system all, all the time. And it's somebody's going to be left out for some reason. And the myth of the meritocracy in this country is, is breathtaking to me that we still sort of want to believe that that's a thing. And it just, it's just not so. I would just ask the question, so how do you correct historic injustices? If you say, no, I'm not willing to, to sacrifice anything that, that might impact me personally, then I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Chris Roebling, your comment, and then we're going to move on. Well, look, I, I think that overcoming our own history of institutionalized racism known as Jim Crow, which supplanted the Reconstruction and followed the Civil War and made life miserable for countless African-Americans in this country, took a lot of hard work by people on all sides of the aisle in the 60s and the 70s. And if you're going to ask, as the caller does, did some of those solutions come out wrong? The answer is, of course they did. And did some of them hurt other people unintentionally? Yes, they did. And our point today, because we all abhor what we saw with Mr. Floyd, is to figure out what we have missed. What have the mayors missed? What have the congressmen missed? What have the presidents missed? What have the the state senators and the state legislators, as Phil says? We have to figure out what parts of the picture have we missed that we can change so that there is an American guarantee of opportunity and equality for everybody. Okay. Is one of the things I just want to make this point before it's too late. Mm -hmm. One of my greatest disappointments with the public conversation to date has been countless, countless posts on social media, starting off by saying we're in America is systematically racist and it has never faced up to racism. I think we've, channeled so much systematic racism out of the out of the the system that it, it's almost impossible for young people today to understand 
what their grandparents face. That's number one. And number two, um, so, so that makes us not a systematically racist country, but still a, you know, a, a, a human and failing enterprise, just like every other human enterprise. But again, and, it, and number two, right, let, let, we let have me, to work together okay. to get over this. All right. You're talking about working together again. I, 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 I want to really see if we can talk about some specifics and not in generalities. And so I would really appreciate that, Chris and Phil as well. I mean, because I mean, one of the things that we missed is that in our system of hiring police officers and in keeping police officers, there are some people who become police officers who are racist. Some, some. There are some who perform poorly, and they perform poorly over and over. Well, again, in the case of, of the case in Minnesota, there was 18 charges against this guy. That's why I do believe that a national database... Of bad of, of of cops who who who, uh, who who are not professional that that database should be kept so someone doesn't lose a job in Minneapolis and and go over to Austin Texas and get a job. I mean, if we register sex offenders because we don't want them to hurt the society again, I'll tell you, a racist cop can hurt the society a lot, a lot. And again, we yes. have to we have to make sure yes. they don't get on the force. And if they get on the force, they got to get their ass off the force quickly. And that means that some mayors, or all mayors, have got to stand up to police unions because police unions frequently are the first ones out there to defend the actions of a bad cop. And that's got to end. And if we're talking Absolutely. about and if we're talking about the the the, the liability of a police officer, here, here's a thought. When 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 a when a bad cop does something, why is it that that municipality has to pay millions and millions of dollars, like we've had in the city of Chicago? Why doesn't any any punitive charge against a bad cop? Why doesn't why doesn't it come out of the union dues? Let the cops right. pay look, union dues, and 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 if a bad cop steps out of line, that every cop is losing a little bit because maybe maybe they'll be a little quicker in 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 calling in a a a, a a partner who does something wrong, like the other three guys up in Minneapolis. So, so Bruce, here's, here's the challenge. I, I sort of view police departments like professional sports organizations, right? Except management and ownership are the citizen and their elected officials. And the players are the police. In successful sports organizations, the players police the players. You don't have management involved in policing the team and and maintaining discipline and unit cohesion internally. Police departments don't have that. They've got the thin blue line and they protect each other at all costs. And so management and ownership have to get involved. And this is what you're seeing. And that's invariably shows the dysfunction that's going on there. Well, what what I think has to happen, by the way, I just want to go to the other side of the equation here. Just as I want to make sure that bad cops and we root out racism in cops, we don't let them get on the force in the first place. And if they get on the force, we find who they are and we kick their ass out. That's number one. That's that's one of an acknowledgement that we all and we've got to say it in with, with some degree of, of concern and, and, and fury. The other part of it is there has to be this conversation with young black Americans and of all all Americans, but primarily within the black community. That if a cop tells you, you the, the parents have got to explain to them there was there's been a horrible experience with blacks and, and and police in the United States. But we 
meaning your mother and your father, if the father is in the household, we are trying to change it. You've got to be part of that. So if a policeman stops you, don't resist, or you're going to be the next statistic. You're going to be the next face found, you know, face down uh, at a crime scene. And, 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 and so the, both, of the, both of those things must happen with a great deal of passion because both of them must be resolved. Both. Bruce, was George Floyd resisting while somebody was kneeling on his neck for no, eight he minutes was, and 46 no, he, seconds? No, he was. Do you think that no, this guy he, who had been through the system, the criminal justice system, didn't know not to resist? I think he was pretty well aware of that. What, and what I'm saying, you can't, we, we cannot use, in this case, we can't just use that example. Because, as you know, there are hundreds of other examples. The guy in in, in Atlanta last night, he learned nothing from the George Floyd circumstance. He didn't learn anything about it. And neither did Breonna Taylor, who was asleep in her bed on a no-knock warrant and shot eight times while she was asleep. Absolutely. I totally agree. She probably had the conversation already. Don't resist. No, not. She worked as an EMT. So that that issue, okay. I think, is a is a red herring. It's not. To, to say, it is not a it is not a red herring. And again, when I hear you say is. that, I, I'm concerned because you're not acknowledging one piece of this very important discussion. If if cops, if there are cops who are going to exist and say, you know, there are some racists in our midst, more than just an apple, it's more than an orchard, it's more than an orchard, and it's more than an apple, and it's more than a bushel. Okay, it's a lot. It's got to be stopped by people who are within that field that stand up and say, enough is enough. We're going to change ourselves. And what I'm saying is that leaders in the black community, including parents, they got to do the same damn thing. And they can't make excuses. Well, this guy wasn't really existing. The guy last night in Atlanta, he was resisting. He's dead now because he was resisting. And he stole a taser and he shot the taser at the cop. Back shortly from Chicago. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's go to Bonnie in Crown Point, Indiana. Bonnie, go ahead. Hi, everybody. Um, Go ahead. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, can hear you now. Go ahead. Can you hear me? 
Yes. Okay. I'd like to follow up on I, as a question to, to Mr. Beverly, and I want to follow up on something that Bruce said with two very quick uh, situations in my life. I was in high school in the late 60s, early 70s. I had a locker partner who was African-American. We were in a, a, a the school had an integrate, you know, was integrated. One day, one of our classmates got pregnant and my locker partner, Sandra, told me, she says, oh my God, she says, if I came home like that, my dad would beat my ass. And then she says, he would, we would be, I would be married within two days. And, and so she came from a two-parent household. That was the norm at that time where you had a father and a mother in the home. So, okay, so there's that situation. Then go a couple years later. Now, I'm married. I have a family. I have two sons. Their father was there in the home. Uh, he and I both explained to them, both of my sons, how to behave if the police ever pulled them over. You know, you don't make any sudden moves. You have your hands on the steering wheel where they can see. You roll the window down. You put the dome light on. You don't make the police officer think you might be pulling a fast one. So I'm, uh, with those previous experiences in mind, my question to Mr. Beverly is, what part does the single parent household play in this? Because right, let's let's let Phil respond. Let's let, you made, you made, you've made your point. Let's let's let Phil respond. I, I don't think that, especially with sons. I don't think that the, the the absence of a of a father is is as critical except in the modeling, right? Because believe me, black mothers are having those conversations with their sons. They have the talk with them over and over and over. And it's just up to the sons whether they're going to succumb to the the pressure of of a phenomenon that is layered and complex. Right. Internalized oppression. It, we don't talk about nearly enough. And I think we should, because if we did, I think we might begin to understand that what we see in some some of the behavior, like why is that behavior look over the top? Because it is because it's not an individual behavior. It is a behavior of a, of a lineage coming into play in a single moment. It's, it's what my business partner and I, and we do EDI work, um, equity, diversity, and inclusion work, is about um, being locked. So if it looks like I'm overreacting to something, I'm being hyper-aggressive or fatalistic or nihilistic, that that's, I'm locked. I'm locked in a, in a moment that brings in all of my, my, my lineage's experience into that moment which is way too big for the moment. Okay. That's understandable. Go ahead, Chris. It's a privilege to be on with you. And it's always a privilege to be on with Phil because he's such a smart guy and well-read and intellectual. And I think has a very true heart about reaching across the aisle to talk about stuff. But in that spirit, I'm going to say that notwithstanding your numerous admonitions to dispense with platitudes. I think it's important to say working together because there are folks on the left today who are starting the conversation by saying all whites are racist, all whites are privileged, whites cannot speak without privilege, and therefore whites have to take a seat at the back of the bus in this conversation. 
And you've got another dimension out there that is saying things like defund the police, whatever the heck that ultimately means. And there might be more answers to the question, what does that mean, than there are people using the expression. Third, we've got another element in this whole tableau, which has got to be denounced. And I think Phil will denounce it. When what happened to Mr. Floyd was seen by hundreds of millions of people around the world, everybody was shocked and dismayed. And everybody had the right to protest against how Minneapolis had let him down and allowed that cop, despite the record you mentioned, Bruce, to be out there. But that does not mean that folks can go out and loot and burn and harm. And we've got African-American police officers now who have been killed in this overreaction that Phil was just talking about, in my humble opinion. So so there, there is an import to saying we, those of us with goodwill and a true heart, have got to work together. And part of that means taking these folks who are inclined towards violence, racism, black versus white racism, or, or just sort of upending the conversation on behalf of a political or ideological agenda, they, they've got to go calm down someplace. And the ones who convicted crimes have got to go to jail. I, I, this is, Phil, we I cannot to... have this conversation without recognizing illegality where it took place. And uh, that's why the cop is going to face let, this day let, in court let's and let... go, to, go to prison. And that's why these folks have got to go to prison. Let's Phil. Phil, respond, please. So there's something interesting in this that, that we do in our, in our workshops, and it's called a try-on. And it, it looks like this. So just try on the, the, the fact that if you're white, you have white privilege. And try on that it is impossible growing up in this society, if you're white, to not be racist. And that doesn't make you a bad person. That doesn't mean you should be shuffled off to the back of the bus. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be involved in the conversation. It's almost like if, if I said, you have diabetes. Oh, well, you shouldn't be involved in a conversation about health. Well, that's ridiculous. It's just a condition. And unfortunately, what's happened primarily on the left with the, I'll say, the collusion of some on the right, there's been a weaponizing of the word. And that weaponizing shuts down the conversation. And so we can't have the conversation because, oh, we used our word and called me a racist, which means I'm bad and I'm not an equal sort of participant in this endeavor. Gentlemen. Let's just say try on just Gentlemen, Philip, Philip, we can't have this conversation anymore because the computer's about to take it from us. Phil Beverly and Chris Roebling joining us in hour number one. We'll be back with another full hour of discussion. Don't go away. This is Beyond the Beltway. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, 
I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back. Thank you very much for joining us for hour number two. In this hour, we are going to be joined by David Masiotra. He is a progressive. He is a professional writer and author. We also have Mark Levin. He is with Right on Crime, who's joining us tonight from Austin, Texas. And Nick Com also joins us. He is a conservative Republican, and he heads his own uh, reputation company called Rep- Reputation Partners. And uh, I want to begin with you, uh, Nick, since uh, you're involved in uh, in dealing with uh, with clients who maybe have, have a problem and they have to change their image. What recommendation would you give to police officers and police departments around the United States at this moment in history. Well, I thank you for having me on as well. And uh, fascinating first hour discussion. I would say that uh, probably the most important thing from a reputation standpoint, whether it's the police force or any other institution is you are only as good as your lowest common denominator. And I know you talked about this in the first hour, but if you've got cops and I do believe that the vast majority of them are good people doing a job most of us wouldn't even dream of being able to do. If you allow bad apples in your midst and they are allowed to be hidden there by fellow cops or protected by unions or allowed to remain in power for one reason or another, it drags down the entire institution. And there needs to be an unrelenting focus on weeding those people out and doing the kinds of things you talked about in your first hour, better training, database, and so forth. 
Uh, Mark Levin, let me ask you, uh, you're with Right on Crime based in Austin, Texas. Uh, what would you add to what uh, what Nick just had to say? And uh, currently, how, how are bad apples within the police department, how are they found out? Is it only because of these high visibility cases? Well, he's absolutely right. You know, um, think of Coca-Cola. The reason the brand is so strong is every can tastes the same. And so the bad, and again, it's a small number, but the officers, it may not even be that they're bad people, but they don't have the right training. And that's a key to this. Uh, the number one thing we need to do is restore legitimacy uh, for pol- that the police should have in every community. Um, and we hear, obviously, of course, we all want law and order, but legitimacy is the bridge between law and order. You can have a lot of laws, but if most people aren't following them, you don't have any order. And then, of course, we've all heard, right, no justice, no peace. Well, uh, we need both justice and peace, right? But legitimacy is what results in people being willing to wait uh for justice to happen and wait peacefully for justice to happen because they'll trust or legitimacy that in fact, for example, officers who commit serious misconduct will be um, you know, held to account through investigations that have integrity. Um, there's been some questions, for example, about some district attorneys that are too heavily tied to police unions. And our, uh, here in Texas, our Attorney General Ken Paxton, uh, conservative Republican, just called for his office to have the authority to step in in those instances. In your particular case, uh, David Maciotro, uh, you're a progressive, you're a writer, as as regular visitors to this program know because you've been on a number of times. Where where would you start to make the first step in in uh, in providing this this new legitimacy of policing in in the African American communities of America? Where do you start? Oh, great to be with you, Bruce. I have been uh, coming on the show for six years now, and it's always a pleasure. Good. Uh, I would start with, I think it was Nick who used the phrase, uh, one bad apple, or there's a few bad apples. Uh, As the old expression goes, uh, one bad apple can spoil the bunch. And uh, one of the problems that we have is this thin blue line culture, which protects criminality. And I would liken it to the Catholic Church. It was only a minority of priests who abused children, but because the church hierarchy protected those priests, the scandal came to implicate the entire church and to cause suspicion in many Catholics and non-Catholics alike of every priest. Picking up on what Mark said, I would certainly begin with more training. Uh, To give your viewers one statistic that's particularly outrageous, uh, in California, it takes 664 hours on-the-job training to become a police officer yet it takes 1,500 hours to become a beautician. Now, I value a good haircut as much as anybody else, but I would like people with guns to have more training than people with hair clippers. Do you all agree, and I'm going to start with you, Mark, do you agree with one of the tenets of the House Senate Democratic plan that there should be a national registry of, of cops, especially those who have been disciplined, so that a bad cop in, in one city isn't inadvertently hired, uh, you know, years later after he's had uh, a number of beefs. Is that a good idea? Well, yeah, it is. And in fact, uh, some jurisdictions have done the same thing with regard to teachers, including those that have committed right. sexual misconduct right. among, uh, you know, their students. Sure. Um, so it, it does make sense. And Colorado just passed a bill that will do that there on a statewide basis. Um, and so, um, and there's also, of course, been discussion about, uh, 
whether other officers should intervene um, when they see wrongdoing and report it, which of course they should. Um, so uh, one of the things that really concerns me, and obviously defunding the police is ridiculous. I mean, more training costs money. Right. If we defund the police, we're not going to be, if, at most we'll be responding to all the calls. Maybe we won't even do that, but we certainly won't do the community-oriented policing to build trust, which actually is shown to increase the cooperation both among victims and witnesses with police investigations so we can actually solve the serious crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick, uh, where do you come down on the registration of, of bad cops, a national registry? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is, it's maybe a broader measure than is actually needed. I don't know how much of a problem it really is, bad cops who get fired from one jurisdiction and showing up somewhere else. I think the bigger issue, though, and we've only touched on it briefly, is the whole union issue, police unions protecting those bad apples. For sure, the thin blue line is there, but it's one of the easier things to fix is making sure that in these collective bargaining agreements that municipalities enter into uh, with police unions, that they are not, they do not agree to anything that protects bad cops. I just want to make one other comment about the thin blue line issue. And again, I know it's real. It's certainly real. There's no question about that. But the current atmosphere in this country that is vilifying all cops, and I think, David, you're correct, the same way in the church, what happened there, bad apples in the police force make a lot of cops look bad, even though I think the vast majority of them are fine people. Um, The thin blue line with the amount that the police departments are under siege and the profession of policing is under siege, you've got to understand that I think what's going to end up happening is that thin blue line is going to get stronger, not weaker. So we have to be a little bit careful about that and be more precise with our language and be clear and go after the bad actors and not tar every police officer with the same brush. When we go back, when we go after the bad, when we go after the, or they're going to feel even more of a siege mentality, Bruce, and then they're going to do even more to feel as if it's them against the world. We've seen the police union leaders showing up and standing up in New York and elsewhere, understandably very upset that all of them are being tarred with that same brush. Well, well, I mean, but doesn't point- it, doesn't this get back, uh, David Masioto? Doesn't this get back to again large cities, major cities run by Democrat mayors? Don't they have to stand up to the police union more than they have? Because because I think everyone would agree that whenever a bad cop you know rears its ugly head. There's some police union guy who's making an excuse for for the actions they took. That's the question to you. We do have to pause. 1-800-723-8289 from coast to coast and border to border around the world. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. 
I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Chris Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. David Masiotra, before the break, you were about to give a brilliant answer, and I had to cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, back to my brilliance. Uh, (laughs) I want to begin the answer by pushing back a little bit on what Mark had said. Uh, I'm a writer, so I'm someone who works with language, and I certainly agree that uh, defund is a horrible term. If if I was giving the term, I would say reinvent the police or reimagine the police, because to your point, Bruce, whether it's a Democratic mayor or Republican mayor or a good chief of police or a bad one, police have to enforce the laws and they have to do so in the neighborhoods that exist when they get there. And they're often sent into neighborhoods that have uh, longstanding poverty, poor institutions of education, little to no commerce, and uh, laws that criminalize nonviolent offenses, especially drug policy, so as those people are treated as felons. And that creates a combustible situation that in order to truly solve, we would have to radically restructure our society Mm -hmm. so that we're not sending people to solve problems of mental illness and substance abuse with a gun, which cannot solve those problems. Most people don't realize the most likely person to get killed by a police officer is not a black man, it's a mentally ill man. And that's because cops don't know how to deal with a psychiatric breakdown. David, would you, would you agree? That I mean, speaks I'll, I'll, David, to the problems of I, I, our health care system and larger David, problems of our David, society. David, I want to ask, well, excuse me, by, me the way, by the way, let me just mention that you know, okay. one, of the, one of the frustrating things about this new way that we all have to do shows uh, via Zoom is that it's difficult to sort of jump in and make the conversation flow as, as easily as it once did when we were all in the same room, although that sometimes got a little out of hand as well. My question to you, a political question, give me a quick answer, if you will, David. Would you acknowledge that the term defund the police, which I don't think initially came from a politician, but it came from it came from the streets somewhere within the the protest movement. Would you acknowledge that 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 bumper sticker may already have stuck to the Democratic Party in this political year? Well, I'm not sure if I would make that acknowledgement. The Republicans will certainly try to make it stick, but uh, most leading Democrats have come out in opposition to it. So uh, we'll have to see how that battle plays out. Uh, Go ahead, Mark. You you were about to make a point and I interrupted you. Go ahead, Mark Levin. Yeah, and it really is a false choice. One of the best models is co-responding for people with mental illness, uh, where you do have both an officer mm-hmm. and a counselor, someone trained. And, of course, we have uh, special teams, uh, crisis intervention teams that most large police departments have. Now, if somebody's just yelling in a McDonald's and they don't have a gun or something, I think we ought to look at the research. Maybe the initial response doesn't have to include an officer on all of those. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, one of the worst things we're using police for is to collect fines, fees, and forfeitures. And that's putting them in a very adversarial position with the community. And in fact, Mayor Bill de Blasio for the the coming budget 
he's already budgeted for police to collect even more than last year. And so that's that's creating the exact uh, bad environment rather than the positive interactions. Um, there was recently a study out of Los Angeles where police that walk kids to school with their parents in certain public housing complexes, the crime rate went down and they did a lot of other activities in community policing, meeting with neighbors, and, and violent crime went down and trust in police went up when compared with other uh, public housing complexes. So that's the kind of, more of that activity and less of the activity that sets up a negative dynamic between police and communities. Nick, would Bruce, you acknowledge, would you acknowledge that the, the, the defund movement um, is not likely to go very far politically? It, it may go far culturally. It may go far in the media. But from a political standpoint, there aren't many politicians out there at the national or even local levels that are going to follow that line. Absolutely. But Bruce, I think a lot of what has just been discussed, though, I mean, interesting about the defund the police, whether that's something I mean, people are holding that up as signs. And I think one of the things that the Democrats did very, very well several years ago was they rebranded global warming to climate change because we were getting these huge snow events and unbelievable cold. And obviously that, that didn't work. I am. I think I'm a little bit with you, Bruce, that maybe defund the police has become something that is stuck on Democrats. But I want to come back to the point that was just being made that everybody has just made. I think very few people from any aspect of the political spectrum would disagree with what's just been discussed. But that's not the issue here. What's going on the same way violence and looters and rioters co-opted peaceful protests, there are people on the left who are now taking the, whether you want to call it defund the police or something else, and they're using it to the idea of don't arrest anybody, open the prisons up, look at some of what the organization, I want to be clear, the organization Black Lives Matter, some of the things that they are specifically advocating for. They want to open the prisons. They want, you see prosecutors as well, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, you know, with all the rioting that was going on in New York, the police would sweep them up and they'd be out the next morning again. Right. That's a real concern. And the thing is, what's interesting is, if you look at broad survey data, very, very, very few people across the country support that level of defunding the police, if you will. A lot of the other things that we we're talking about, interventions with people who have mental illness and so forth, not having them be doing, as Mark was talking about, collecting fines. David, I think your very legitimate point about coming into communities that are impoverished and being that authority figure over petty crimes and, and magnifying them into things. The bigger issue, though, the bigger issue, if we're going to not arrest people or if they riot and loot, we're going to put them back out on the streets again. Most people don't want that. Most people do not support that, including in those impoverished communities. In in, in, uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis uh, today, it was announced that seven officers have resigned from the police force uh, because of the publicity and and the, the, the public pressure uh, that they feel they're under because of the lack of support they've received from the city and the governor of that state. Uh, Mark, do, do you see this as something that that's a condition that may grow, that police officers will be, uh, they'll be less likely to be aggressive in any way to go in and, and, and deal with crime because they will fear either someone's got a, a, a you know, a, an iPhone or uh, they feel that the, the bosses aren't going to back them up. Well, it's a delicate balance. You're absolutely right. And I mean, I think transparency is good. Um, but if you have a situation where, um, you know, um, an officer 
Uh, I mean, there are situations where people resist arrest and officers do need to resort to some degree of force. And hopefully it's an appropriate level of force. But training and de-escalation techniques can certainly be very helpful. Um, improving the communication skills of officers it can be very helpful in explaining to someone why they're being arrested um, often will result in greater compliance. Um, so, so there are things we can do uh, to try to give officers the tools so there's fewer of those situations, but we do have to be realistic about it. There's always going to be those cases where an officer does need to resort to force. But another one, by the way, is uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Randy Peterson, who's a career law enforcement officer, did a study on physical fitness for officers. And police unions have blocked some of those requirements, but it found when they're physically fit, they're less likely to have to resort to using their gun or another weapon. Um, so that is another common sense thing that we can do. And just can I pick up on that common sense thing? That's the other thing that's amazing. I mean, we were just talking about this. Bruce, you were talking about the limitations of technology here, even with Zoom. The fact that we're all able to have this video conference and that it's transformed the world. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed at how little technology has really transformed policing. I mean, the most modern thing we're talking about are tasers. Those have been around, what, 30, 40 years? Right. I mean, there's got to be other things to restrain people that don't involve kneeling on someone's neck chokeholds and so forth, you know, there's netting, there's all kinds of things that can be used that would be non-lethal in nature, but would at least represent some modernization. I'm just surprised that's not part of the conversation. One because thing people that... are going to be people. And you see, like the situation that you saw in Atlanta the other night, I mean, again, you've got to find, there's got to be something that the police should do in a situation like that. You're not going to let somebody who's drunk jump back into a car and endanger other people's lives. But are you going to shoot him? No, obviously that's not appropriate either. We have three minutes left, actually two minutes left in this segment, and I'm going to give everybody 30 seconds to answer this question. I'm going to start with you, David Masiotra. If you were the chief law enforcement agent tonight in the city of Seattle, Washington, would you just let things stay as they go, or would you move in and disrupt it at some point? Well, according to what the mayor and several city council members in Seattle have said, that that uh, autonomous zone there is largely peaceful. Uh, I would let it play out. Uh, How long? Obviously, there. How long? Well, that I was just going to say. Obviously, there has to be some limit to it. What would be the limit for uh, what would be the limit for you? I've just appointed you the boss. What would be the limit for you? You know, I would have that conversation with the people down there and say, let's agree upon a date. Blah, blah, blah. David, you sound like a politician. For you to leave. Let me, let me go. Let me go. Let me go to Mark. Mark, what's your answer? What would you do if you were in charge of Seattle? I'd ask somebody more qualified to make that decision, but I can tell you this response times for police are three times and it's for ambulances too, what they normally would be. So people might die because of what's going on. So it's an extreme situation. I would try to find people that might have credibility with the people inside there, put them over, whether it's a bullhorn or whatever way to get the message out, but find a way, um, you know, obviously none, none of us want to send in tanks, right? Or the Air Force. Now, National Guard is, is a legitimate uh, option. So um, I, we all want to end that as soon as possible with the least damage and hopefully no bloodshed. Well, we have not heard from uh, Superintendent Nick Calm as to what he would do. we got a break. But when we come back, I want to know from Nick Calm, our, probably our most conservative guest this evening, what would he do about the siege in Seattle?
Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Chris Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us tonight from coast to coast and border to border. And we're going to let each of our guests now take a moment and introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with David Masiotra. David? Yeah, uh, great to be with everybody. Uh, I'm a uh, writer, a columnist with Salon, and the author of several books, uh, including the forthcoming book, uh, I Am Somebody, Why Jesse Jackson Matters. That'll be out in October and uh, one quick interesting note on Jackson, he was one of the lone uh, black leaders, believe it or not, in 94, who testified against the crime bill. So these conversations we're having go back uh, many years, mm-hmm. and not all the players line up where you would expect them to when you review the history. Uh, does that mean he's going to not endorse Joe Biden? Well, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> No, he's endorsed Biden, uh, but well, he's certainly critical of that aspect of Biden's record. Well, that's a big part of his record. Mark Levin, tell us a little bit about who you are. You're, you're not the nationally syndicated Radio Hall of Fame talk show host, but I'm sure you get lots of questions about it. Yes, and occasionally confusion at TSA. <laughs> but uh, I'm Mark Levin, Chief of Policy and Innovation at Right on Crime, which is part of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And we've been basically the conservative clearinghouse uh, when it comes to criminal justice reform from the perspective of public safety, uh, limited government, and individual liberty. And we started in Texas, where we've been able to reduce crime by 40% and close eight prisons, soon to be 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick Calm, tell us who you are. Yes, thanks, Bruce. Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Calm. I'm the founder of a firm called Reputation Partners. It's a public relations and communications consulting firm uh, based in Chicago with clients across the country. Uh, Mark, uh, you and I, we go back a long way. You've been a guest on this program for many, many years talking about the important need for criminal justice reform and your organization and your hard work, uh, working uh, sort of the right side of the aisle, I think uh, made a tremendous contribution. And the reason that is the law of the land now is because of efforts by yourself and the organizations that you represent, the Texas Public Policy Institute and Right on Crime. So you must be a, a happy camper to have that you know, on your resume. However, given the current situation, obviously the president is in a re-election effort, and he has talked about that, uh, that uh, legislation on numerous occasions, saying that uh, this is a reason why African Americans should give him uh, you know, a chance uh, for a potential v- voter. But uh, how has the situation involving George Floyd, uh, or is it too early to tell, how could that slow things down for the next steps that are needed beyond the first step act? 
Yeah, well, thanks for mentioning the First Step Act that President Trump signed. It was a tremendous bipartisan achievement, and mm-hmm. I had the privilege of being at the White House on many occasions leading up to that. Right. But I, I think that you put your now you put you put your, that's an excellent point. That of course, anytime you have mass chaos and and disorder, people are rightfully frightened. And um, uh, at the same time, there's this huge desire to avoid injustices like what happened to George Floyd. So it gets back to what we've been talking about: is how can we you know, find the right balance. Um, and I think one of the things we have to do when we've had a great conversation about policing is realize that if we can't put everything at the feet of police. They reflect our society. And we have a lot of issues in terms of what are the uh, strongest factors in terms of social control? Well, first, the family, churches, community. That's what influences a lot of people so that they have the, um, the sense of, uh, of uh, and, and the uh, disposition to follow the law. And they, it's not a matter of that they're, you know, worried whether they're going to be caught by the police or not. So, and then, of course, you have issues like mental illness, what I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to realize we have a, a, a need to address this on a societal basis and also to address the legitimacy of the criminal justice system on issues like wrongful convictions, mm-hmm. where we've certainly seen in DNA and other cases, people that have mm-hmm. been convicted that weren't guilty. So addressing those things um, and not just saying all, all of this has to this whole burden has to fall on the police, I think, is the critical thing at this time. Are there are there some uh, within uh, the, the the right specter of American politics, however, who who were they were on your side the last time when you went to them to support uh, the First Step Act, but they might be reluctant to do it now because it might be perceived as something that is anti-police. Or that it's just responding uh, to to the, the voices from the, the streets, which are calling for police reform, but uh, not too much. Uh, there's not too much reform that needs to be done in the uh, in the African American communities. Well, that's why it's so important to reject this defunding um, nonsense. You know, even if you look at police per capita, we have fewer police per capita than not just Mexico and Turkey, but also fewer police per capita than France and Spain. Now we have, in terms of prisons, we've got, you know, exponentially more per capita. And of course, as uh, Nick said, there are people that need to be in prison too, and we shouldn't be afraid to say that. Um, So there have been these radical calls for abolishing police and courts and prisons. And so that's never been what we're about. I actually think what we're seeing, I've had so many conservative legislators and members of Congress reach out to me and others on our team in the last few weeks to say, we want your ideas. And these are people that were never, they weren't necessarily against criminal justice reform before, but they never focused on it. So what all of this has done is move it to the front burner. And as conservatives, we have to have solutions. And oftentimes there may be some overlap with those uh, in the left. There's a lot of overlap with the average uh, citizens in the black community and every community, but there are also differences. And we need to be upfront about that. David, do you think the, do you think the left at this moment might be pushing too fast uh, uh, and, and trying to go too far, uh, just picking up on the on the public support that they have uh, regarding the, the George Floyd case? Well, that happens uh, with any social movement. There's people who push too fast, too far, and then there's more moderate voices. But one thing I would say is I find it interesting that we're willing to question the budgets and the allocation of resources and personnel in every public institution and agency of our society, education, transportation, healthcare, on and on, except police and the military. 
Now, I'll give you an anecdotal example. I grew up in a town called Lansing, Illinois. It had a, almost a zero crime rate. Uh, in the early to mid-90s, they had an anti-gang task force. It was a joke. There wasn't one gang in the entire town or neighboring towns. So I don't think it's uh, nonsense or illegitimate or unreasonable to ask, where can we reduce funds, not eliminate funds, but reduce funds from police departments and better allocate them into social services that would attack some of these problems like mental illness and poverty and joblessness and homelessness at the root source. Do you like my idea? And this is a question to everybody. Do you like my idea that uh, that if a police officer uh, does something wrong and is is penalized and there's a fine for that that officer's actions, that instead of having the local municipality pay that fine, uh, that perhaps that fine should come out of the uh, the largesse of the Chicago or or any police union wherever they are, or maybe the maybe the national police unions around the country that that bad police officers uh, should be paid for uh, by uh, by officers of uh, the basic union. David, I'll let you tackle it. Give me a short answer, if you will, to that question. Yeah, I think the more skin in the game that yes. uh, different people have, the better for our society. Collective responsibility works better than okay. a singular right. source of blame. Mark Levin. Well, think? I think it's something worth looking at. There's been a lot of proposals. What Colorado just passed uh, rolled back qualified immunity, but it also capped what an officer's exposure would be to 5% of the judgment or 25000 whichever is mm-hmm. less. Um, no one wants to bankrupt either officers or uh, towns and municipalities, right. which are the taxpayers, basically. But this qualified immunity has gone too far where you have to have an exact a case, a previous case. It's exactly the same. Uh, that's a published legal opinion to uh, win as a plaintiff. And I do think we need to uh, clarify that. Uh, Nick, your response to my question. Bruce, I think a better idea is what I was talking about earlier, which is telling municipalities to stop agreeing to collective bargaining agreements that protect bad cops. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't need to charge the unions to pay those uh, settlements if you had let if you didn't have them with agreements that basically protected the bad cops. Speaking of that, uh, before the break, uh, I had appointed you the superintendent of police in Seattle, and you did not tell us uh, your other colleagues were, they were a little political in their answers. Uh, what would you do? To, yeah, I uh, thought you forgot about me there, Bruce. Thanks for coming back on that one. Well, no. I think one of the things that we've seen in the response to COVID is governments are more than happy to print money. And I think, David, you know, to your point about it's not an either or. I think if we need more money for social services, although God knows we've spent enough over the last 50 or 60 years great society onwards. But back to the Chaz issue specifically, beyond canceling my vacation plans to the country of Chaz, I think what I would do as superintendent is to um, basically take government money, move all the law-abiding residents and business owners out of that district, and then make sure that there's 24-7 media coverage on the country of Chaz because it's an abject lesson in the failure of socialism and communism. Well, I think, uh, but but you bring in the troops. Eventually, no, you bring in the troops. No, 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 no troops. No, no, no. I'm serious. No I'm saying let it let it go as long as it's it's already unraveling. Okay, it's like the story that people forgot about the Pilgrims here mm-hmm. when they first moved to the United States from England. Mm-hmm. They adopted a communistic system, and everybody began to starve. 
So the same thing. These guys can't there. They can't find their way out of a paper bag with a roadmap. Well, they're looking for let's, food and toilet paper and everything else this afternoon. Exactly. Let's let them. Let's let them stay there as long as they want. But may, you don't forget my first point. Get the law-abiding people who live in that area out. Set them up with government dollars elsewhere. Don't come in with the troops. Don't come in with National Guard. Let it stay there. But let's make sure there's plenty of focus on how abject a failure this is. I would. Well, if somebody doesn't do something, uh, other entities and groups elsewhere are going to try to emulate Chaz. And that's my concern. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about it. David wants to talk about a few things as well. But I want to talk about uh, whether or not other people will try it if uh, the folks in Chaz get away with it. Back shortly from Evanston, Illinois, I'm Bruce Dumont. This is Beyond the Beltway. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back and uh, Mac Birch and Doug Dunlap and Michael Talk and uh, Sherry Calabro are all enjoying the show this evening with their uh, great uh, posts on uh, Facebook, which you can do, as well as uh, listen to this program. If you ever miss it, of course, you can find it on Facebook. Uh, uh, Facebook Live, when we're doing it live, uh, you'll also get the rerun there, and also you'll get it on YouTube, and you can also get it uh, on Spotify uh, if you're interested in just the, the audio portion uh, of the, the program. Um, I want to talk about uh, something. Uh, let, let's, let's take a call. Dave from Spokane, Washington. Go ahead, Dave. You're on the air. Hey, guys. I'll try and make this sort of brief. Okay. Uh, a couple points. Uh, governors and mayors, basically from Seattle and across the country, they're not only allowing, but they're even encouraging some of this bad behavior you see. When you let people break curfews, you let people stop traffic on bridges by just massing on the bridge, you know, not caring about an ambulance that might want to get across or anything else, those are behaviors you can't allow. You give an inch, they take a mile. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I'm kind of upset with is the conflating of issues that we get. We have people talking about homicide as if it's murder. Um, every homicide is not a murder in the same way that every homicide of a black person or a person of color is not racism. And I'm a little bit flabbergasted that we get to this point where we're talking about racism uh, in the police force and everyday life when this is ultimately, this specific case, turned out to be reckless misuse of power. And if you look at the Michael Brown case, that's another one where it was talked about racism from the beginning. And this was proven by the Eric Holder Justice Department not to be racism. There was no hands up, don't shoot. But do people go back and apologize for that or apologize to the police department? No. And the reason that people think there's such rampant racism in society 
is that those types of narratives, the Michael Brown, uh, even what we had before, even Trayvon Martin, it's allowed to perpetuate out there that it was racism when it really wasn't. It's shown to not be. And, and when you allow people to think that, then every time something happens with a black person, it's just like, oh, there's another incident, even though most of the ones they referred to in the first place were not. So that's pretty much yeah. it. Well, I, 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 I share that thought because I think one of the concerns is that, you know, if you cry racism all the time, when an issue comes along that absolutely positively is uh, uh, has a racial component to it, then uh, it, 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 it isn't as important because you've heard it 15, uh, 15 times. David Masiotra, do you agree with that or not? No, I would say that the, with all due respect to the caller, he's selectively quoting the Holder Justice Department report, which did find in favor of the individual officer who shot Michael Brown. But it also found that within the city of Ferguson, there was systemic and sustained harassment and brutality against its black residents. And that's similar to the Kerner Commission report of 1968, which was tasked to study why riots broke out in city after city in the 60s. And this bipartisan committee within Congress, all white, by the way, uh, said that the reason the riots broke out was because there was a severe catastrophic level of inequality and the people on the underside of that inequality, blacks in the inner cities, felt that they had no legitimate source of grievance in civil society. So they recommended if you want to end rioting and unrest, address the inequality. 50 years later, we still haven't addressed the inequality. Mm. We have inner city neighborhoods where black children suffer right. asthmatic rates at uh, yeah. catastrophic I, levels compared yeah. to white Dave, let, let, let me ask you something. Let me ask you Let me ask you something else that is has has become an issue, and it may become an issue. Certainly, we have in the wake of uh, the George Floyd case, uh, we have people who have uh, taken the law in their own hands and have chosen to tear down and break down uh, many. Confederate statutes and other statutes around the United States. Another has been a call that many U.S. military bases who were named after Confederate generals, they should be changed uh, to, uh, to other names. But they, it, it, the, the, it's, the time is over. Uh, I want to start with you, uh, Nick Calm. Do you agree that uh, the military bases should be renamed, which the, the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee, the Republican Armed Services Committee, say it's something that they want to review. So that's the first time they've sent a signal. It's different than what the president has said. But what does Nick Com say about that issue? Well, it's a manufactured issue, I think, to a large degree, Bruce. I really do. I mean, I think it's been manufactured by activists and so forth. I don't think the average person of color out there is thinking, well, why did they name it Fort Hood? And why is it named Fort Hood? Is Black? it right? Is, is it more than just symbolism? At this moment in time, um, why are they still named after Confederate generals? Well, no, and I see the point. I do. I just don't think it rises to the level of importance that it seems to be given. So, but yes, certainly go ahead and review the names. And if they're certainly, I mean, there, I think it was uh, uh, Bill Gates who said, or Bill Gates, Bob Gates this morning on one of the talk shows was talking about, he's surprised that there isn't a Fort Washington or a Fort Lincoln. And there should be. I mean, there are true right. American heroes that uh, we should have some forts named after. And I think it's fine. I just don't think okay. it's nearly as important an issue as it's been manufactured to be. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Mark Levin, where, where do you come down yeah. on this issue? 
Well, let me go back to the, the issue of race, because I think sometimes where we get into all the disagreements is about what the intentions, whether it's of a particular officer or characterizing as a group, which is really difficult. But if we look at certain outcomes in the justice system, I just looked in the Houston area, 56 percent of people uh, arrested or charged with marijuana, low level marijuana possession were black, which is much higher. And of course, people pulled over for even things like an expired inspection sticker. You know, Tim Scott always talks about how but he's pulled over. So now a lot of that's, you know, the economic factors, right? If you're poor, you're probably more likely to not renew your inspection, right? So I think that we have to address those issues. Um, and so, um, but there's a way to do that that I think is very much consistent we're, with public safety. We're, we're out of time right now, but I want to ask 10 seconds to you, David Massiotru, about uh, renaming the military bases, your reaction. Yeah, absolutely. No reason to honor people who tried to secede from the country and went to war with our country. That's treason, and uh, we should treat them as such. Well, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to use the word treason, but I will say that I agree with you, and I agree with General Petraeus, uh, who basically said that these military installations, installations, it's now time uh, to think about renaming them. I think they should be named. Uh, They were basically all named during Democratic administrations. So maybe it's going to take a Republican, even though I think you had to change the president's mind on this one. I think the president is wrong. History is against him on this side. It's time to change the military bases. I want to talk a little bit more about statues next week. It's a little bit different not, and not as clear cut in my mind. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks to Andrew Marshall for his assistance in the production of this program. Good night.